This is the Carl D. Bradley, once the largest freighter on the Great Lakes, which now lies in the graveyard of ships in the northern reaches of Lake Michigan. Anyone that hasn't been in a storm like that doesn't understand what it does to your psyche. You know, you, you're, you're, you're scared, and if you're not scared, you're a liar. When you question whether you should go out or not because of rough weather, you're, you're in the wrong ballpark. That's what they're paying us to do. The historians of the lake writing the stories have always talked about the Bradley breaking in two and sinking in two pieces. It did not. It did break in two. I was there. I seen it. Elmer Fleming was there. He saw it. Twas fall 58 when I got the chance to ship on the Bradley upbound. These are voices from one of the Great Lakes' most controversial shipwrecks, the largest freighter ever lost on Lake Michigan, the Carl D. Bradley. In this special podcast presentation, I'll share conversations with not only a survivor, but also several men who raced out to rescue the crew in a killer storm in 1958. Most of these interviews are exclusives and are all copyright to Airworthy Productions and may not be rebroadcast without written permission. I'm Rick Mixter, and this is the story of the ship that time forgot, the Carl D. Bradley. And I'll never forget that night on the deck when the Bradley was torn and then gone. In 1906, the long kilns at Buffington Harbor were turned over to Universal Portland Cement, a subsidiary of United States Steel Company. The brand new facility had just built a new dock to bring in raw commodities, which U.S. Steel had its Bradley fleet to haul in. Named for Michigan Limestone's president, Carl Bradley, the fleet was based in Port Calcite, near Rogers City on the northern shores of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. It was here that the world's largest limestone quarry turned out stone that was used mostly for Portland cement, and the Bradley fleet was already busy hauling stone for the steel mills and other cement operations when a lucrative contract was signed for a million tons. Michigan limestone needed something bigger for the route to the end of Lake Michigan, and plans for what would be the largest freighter ever constructed for fresh water were drawn up at American Shipbuilding. Those plans would include a turboelectric engine, which the Bradley fleet was having mixed success with aboard the steamer T.W. Robinson. With coal prices up 40% in the late 1920s, any savings in cost were investigated, and the new automated Westinghouse Stoker that was put into the Goliath freighter would burn slack coal, which was a dollar cheaper per ton, and also save on manpower costs as well. Like most of the freighters in the fleet, the new self-unloader would be named for an executive in the company. As the flagship for Bradley Transportation, the honor would go to Carl David Bradley, but he already had a ship with his name. That 550-foot ship was renamed John G. Munson, and the name Carl D. Bradley was painted onto the new 638-foot side of the new freighter. Launched on April 9, 1927, the Bradley was fitted out and christened for duty at Calcite on July 28, 1927. Goderich native and longtime skipper Bill McLean was the first to command the ship. The entire operation at Kelsite was shut down to allow everyone to see the modern wonder, which loaded with 14,627 tons of limestone for the cement plant in Indiana. U.S. Steel Vice President Chris Bukema took several trips on board the flagship. 
The Bradley was the was the fine ship that we had. It was the finest ship. It, the Bradley had been the uh, sort of the queen of the lakes for more years than any ship had at that point in time. She was 638 feet, nine inches, something like that. And she was the biggest of the ships of its type. And she ruled uh, as the queen of the lakes for a long, long time, one of the fastest ships. Bradley broke cargo hauling records for decades, beating steel plants and cement processors with limestone. Captain McLean took sick and was replaced by Forrest Pierce in 1936. Seven years later, Captain Pierce was at the helm as the Bradley opened the new MacArthur Lock, sailing through at 2.30 in the afternoon, July 11, 1943. Carl Bradley's son, Congressman Fred Bradley, talked about his father and the ship that had the honor as the first boat through. Quote, she is a self-unloader and she was until recently the largest and fastest steamer on the Great Lakes, Bradley told his peers in Congress. Her largest cargo of limestone was 18,284 net tons. Last year, in eight months, she carried 14 million tons, a distance of over 65,000 miles, almost three times around the world, and delivered it on the docks of our arsenal of democracy." Close quote. Just four months after the historic lockthrough, I-beams were laid down to begin construction on a new 180-foot Coast Guard cutter. Sundew would be launched three months later in Duluth. Sundew and the Carl D. Bradley would be linked in history forever, but another occurrence in 1940 had to happen first. My first desire was to join the Navy. My father had been in the Navy. So I went down to the enlistment office in Chicago, and uh, this was in 1940. I went down to them and stuck my head in the door and they asked me what I wanted and I told them I just wanted to know how long I had to sign up for if I enlisted in the Coast Guard. And they told me three years. So I said, well, that's a lot better than what the Navy's offering, so I'd, I'd like to uh, enlist in the Coast Guard. Harold Muth started as a sound man, working the new invention sonar to detect Nazi U-boats that were terrorizing the eastern coast of the United States. I got to know quite a bit about uh, this business of chasing submarines and uh, attacking submarines and operating the uh, sound stack. And I think it was in uh, either October or November of the same year, 1941, that they sent me to the sound operator school in Key West. Muth was assigned to the cutter Triton, which guarded convoys on the East Coast all the way down to Florida. While escorting the cargo ship Bluefields and several other ships, they found trouble off North Carolina. In the vicinity of Cape Lookout, uh, we picked up a contact, and we made two charges on them, two uh, depth charge uh, attacks, and uh, then uh, had to uh, resume our uh, station on the, uh, we were on the starboard uh, quarter of the convoy. And just as before we got to the station, uh, our station, the uh, submarine let fly with four torpedoes and hit three ships. And shortly thereafter, we were told to uh, muster the remainder of the uh, convoy, take them to uh, Key West. But before we left the scene, uh, the, the U-boat, uh, evidently damaged by our, our depth charge attack, surfaced uh, right in the middle of the convoy, what was the remainder of the convoy. And at that time, we had air coverage from uh, Cherry Point Marine Station, two Navy pilots and a 
airplanes with uh, depth charges and uh, flew right over the submarine after it surfaced, just almost uh, instantaneously. Dropped their charges and uh, the submarine rolled over and uh, that was the end of him. So that was the beginning of our escort duty. In another incident, Muth would find another contact off the coast of Florida. Thetis, which was alongside of us uh, in, the, in the screen, picked up a contact and they told us it was a good one. So uh, we went over and told them we'd uh, provide a screening for the Thetis as she made her attack. She dropped some charges and recovered some uh, lubricating oil, some broken deck gratings, wooden grating, uh, and some uh, diesel oil and a, a leather jacket. So we went in and dropped a, heck, a few more charges on it and brought up a, a bunch of fuel oil. And uh, we later learned that that was the uh, U-157. After assignments in California and Alaska, Muth was transferred to the Great Lakes, assuming command of the Sundew in 1957. The Carl D. Bradley would have several full-time skippers after Captain Pierce left the pilot house in 1950. Four years later, its final captain took command, Roland Bryan. I heard that the Great Lakes, uh, you know, get uh, pretty rough at times. Uh, I wasn't surprised. Uh, I think the first time I encountered any real heavy weather was uh, up in the Straits in the St. Ignace, uh, Mackinac City area. And man, it get, got up to about 80 miles an hour in a hurry and I ran into the uh, old ferry docks at uh, St. Ignace and got out of that one. Forecasters warned of a similar storm in November of 1958. Cold Arctic air passed from Canada down to Texas, which met with an unusually warm, moist air from the south. Upper air circulation aided the storm that caused over 20 tornadoes and then blanketed a quarter of the country with snow, with Tucson, Arizona seen its first snow since 1919. 140 mile per hour wind gusts ripped at Texas as the storm moved northward through Oklahoma, Kansas, and Iowa. 20 inches of snow fell in Wyoming and tornadoes ripped through Wisconsin as the storm grazed the Great Lakes. 60 mile per hour winds in Minneapolis broke records set during the King of Storms in 1913. On the night of November 17th, the effects of the storm system brought gale warnings on Lake Michigan. The steamer Carl D. Bradley had just unloaded limestone at Buffington Harbor near Gary, Indiana, when the captain received the weather update. The crew thought this was their last run before the ship went into layup, leaving Buffington at 10 p.m., traveling up the Wisconsin coastline towards the dry dock at Manitowoc. Just short of there, they received a radio call that ordered another run from Calcite. The crew were likely split on the need for another run, as the Bradley had laid dormant for four months during the summer when the need for limestone slacked. Deckhand Frank Mays had only four weeks on the freighter, moving from a temporary assignment on the motor vessel Cedarville. He said getting a job with the Bradley fleet was what most local boys wanted. When you graduate from high school, that was a place to go because you could make the dollars. And it was, it was a good job, a very good job. And were, uh, it was a family type of fleet. People were, the majority were from Roger City and the surrounding area. Frank also knew the ship had grounded near their quarry at Cedarville, Michigan, resulting in temporary repairs to the keel. Captain Bryan himself had written friends worrying about two groundings in 1958, notifying Florence Heard his boat was, quote, ripe for too much weather, close quote. 
too much weather was on its way. The building waves were minimized by the course along Lake Michigan's west coast, but he ultimately had to plot a course to cross the big lake once he reached Cana Island. It was here that first mate Elmer Fleming drew a line on the chart that bisected the lighthouse at Lansing Shoals in Seychois. Fleming had ordered the deck crew to prepare the hatches for rough weather, and the stays on the Bradley's 160-foot boom were locked in. Uh, my job as a watchman was to uh, assist in loading and unloading the boats, such as opening and closing the hatches, sounding the boat, uh, working with the deckhand and the watchman while you're on the run. And when you're in port unloading, you were down in the tunnel, operating the gates, which let the material flow through onto the conveyor belt. And if you were still on watch when you got done, it was hosing down the tunnel, picking up any spillage that spilled over, cleaning, general cleaning of the area. The captain ordered the forward ballast tanks to be pumped partially with lake water to bring the empty ship further down into the water as they prepared for a November gale that was now shifting from the south to a full gale from the southwest. The steamers Johnston and Charles Hutchinson were having a rough time near Boulder Reef, both seeking shelter from the storm. At least eight ships were hiding in Green Bay as the Bradley turned into the teeth of the storm. At 5.30, Fleming was on watch when he heard a thunderous thud and looked aft to see the stern of the giant ship was sagging. As the deck began to part, he made two mayday calls with their location 12 miles southwest of Gull Island. The electric line severed as the ship tore at the deck, causing the radios to go silent. Having a cigarette with another crewman in the dunnage room, Frank Mays says the thud he heard echoed through the empty cargo hold. We had no cargo, and being a cargo hold is hollow. The sound traveled through. It was, it was a loud thud that you knew instantly that there was something had happened. We didn't know if you were hit or you hit. And we got up on deck, and that's when we saw that the stern was missing because it had sagged so far below the main deck, you couldn't see it. Then it would come back up again. In the darkness of the storm, sparks shot out as the Bradley's main deck tore apart. And you could see the flashes, the blue light, as the electrical cables were starting to part one by one. I was in an area right, right about here when a first mate said, someone get the life raft ready, which is in an area here. So I climbed aboard the life raft. And the first mate left the pilot house and went down on this deck to his room. He said when he went to get his life jacket, the main deck up here was awash. Meaning water was already on the deck. We had gone that far down. Fleming knew there was no question as to the fate of the Bradley. Quote, I knew we were going to sink, he later told reporters. While I was watching, about 250 feet of the stern section went straight down, fast. Close quote. We see the ship bend many times, but they're made to bend. But we're not, I've never seen a stern disappear as we saw this. We went into our rooms, we got our life jackets, they were stored overhead in the rooms in a rack. And we crossed over from the port side, which is left, to the starboard side, which is right. Because we saw the danger and it was already in the process of breaking up and we knew we couldn't get aft. At least I felt I couldn't get aft, so I went topside up to the pilot house deck where the life raft was kept. 
with a widening gap amidship, the only escape for the captain and the men of the forward end would be on a 16-person life raft, essentially pontoons with fencing attached to both sides. So I just climbed aboard and I started preparing, make sure everything was loose, some of the craft itself was loose, it could be picked up because it, was a, it sat on this rack to be free floating, just to float away. And at that time we were going straight down until apparently it became top heavy. And then she listed, started to list to the port and just went faster and faster and finally just very fast and tipped right on the side. And when I came up out of the water, I came up next to the raft, got on board, and I did not see any more of the forward end. All I saw was the after end, still on even keel, floating. The life raft crashed into the water and no one could hold on. Frank said he surfaced and with a short swim was on the raft. The first mate and three watchmen were the only ones to make it off the Bradley alive. As we were getting sort of on the raft, sitting and watching, we were in a position here, so apparently this had drifted that way because we could see the starboard side of the after end. We were packing 50 to 60 yards away. And we watched it, just kept watching. It was, it was all lit, just as if it was still underway as a full ship. Mays believes the Bradley sank in two pieces, watching the bow slip beneath the waves while the stern sat upright in the 30-foot waves. The cargo hold, we, we think, uh, it filled with water, became heavier here that it just tipped the ship right straight out. The wheel right out of the water up here and just started to, to go under. And when the ice water hit the, the hot boilers, that's when it exploded into a red ball of flame. And the lights were still on, and then it, it just disappeared, and everything was dark. That was it. It was gone. Deck watchman Dennis Meredith didn't have time to even put his shoes on. He was on the raft in a sweatshirt and pants. Yeah, I was dressed for heavy weather because I was on watch and I had been on deck. So I was pretty well protected with clothing, where some of them weren't because if they're lying in bed and they're sleeping, you know, and they could grab what they could. A giant air and sea rescue mission converged on the area after hearing this distress message. We are breaking up and in a sinking condition. Elmer Fleming's distress call had been heard throughout the lakes and the Coast Guard response teams kicked into action. The 180-foot cutter Sundew was minimally staffed in Charlevoix, Michigan. Captain Muth's wife had just come home from the hospital with their new son. He was born just, I think, on the 12th of uh, November. And my wife had uh, come home from uh, the hospital just uh, two days before the Bradley sank. So. Uh, that was on the 18th of November. My mother was with us, so she had prepared a nice uh, evening meal, veal roast, I remember that. Just as we were ready to sit down to dinner, the phone rang and uh, I was informed that the Bradley had broken up and sank up uh, around Boulder Reef. So I never did get to eat that veal roast, but uh, we, we uh, got down to the ship in short order and uh, the crew had already taken measures to unload some of the heavy equipment, our sinkers and chains and so forth, uh, off the buoy deck and uh, we were taking on uh, water in a couple of uh, fuel tanks that were empty forward to, to give the ship uh, some ballast and better stability. 
and uh, made a recall. So we didn't uh, have uh, an opportunity to get the entire crew back, but when we had 22 people on board and we had a couple of cooks and a hospital corpsman, and uh, I was told that they had enough for the deck watches and the engineering watches, so we got underway, and I think that was about 6.15 or 6.20 that night. The severity of the storm was felt just as soon as the sundew found open water on Lake Michigan. As soon as we cleared the, the uh, breakwater, we, we ran into some heavy swells and waves. And at that time, we uh, encountered a 36-foot lifeboat that Charlevoix Lifeboat Station had uh, dispatched. And he uh, came up on the call-in channel and said that he was having uh, problems with his steering gear and he couldn't uh, hold to a course. And, what should he do? So I told him, well, I think the best thing for you to do is get back to your station, get out of this weather. I don't think he would have been worth a grain of salt anyhow to go out 45 miles into the lake in those conditions. So we told him to go back and we set a course for the sinking site, it was 300 True. As four men on a lifeboat were tossed about in 30-foot seas, the sundew pushed on with a fraction of her crew in hurricane force winds. We encountered some big ones and took some heavy water up and around the bridge and uh, we flooded out our main transmitter, which was just uh, immediately abaft of uh, the bridge area. And that uh, put us at a kind of a weakened position as far as communications were concerned. But we didn't have uh, our electronics technician on board. I called the chief electrician's mate, who was uh, experienced in electronics as well, and asked him if he could go in there and see what, what he could do about the restoring the uh, main transmitter. The electrician didn't have just water to contend with, as the sundew now had a laundry room instead of a radio room. We had a little cleaning locker back there, and uh, we had some soap powder in the storage and stored in the cleaning uh, locker, and uh, that soap powder got into the water, and with the ship rolling back and forth, we had a real bunch of foam there. And I kind of uh, looked at Opal, I, I said, well, if you can't do any good here, you get back down in the engine room, and he said, what are we gonna do about this uh, foam and stuff? I said, never mind that, just close the door, we, our secondary transmitter was attached to the bulkhead, so I knew that you know, it was clear of any water damage. Operating on the secondary radio, Sundu could talk to Charlevoix and other ships, but could not communicate with aircraft that were dropping flares and searching for survivors. Corman Warren Toussaint remembers you couldn't walk safely when the ship pitched and rolled in the storm. You didn't walk. You, every step could... I, you went down one step like you were plumbing a cripple. One time, be sure you got a hold of yourself because you'd get slammed against that bulkhead. But I didn't. Warren says a few of the crew figured the best way to stay safe was to anchor themselves down. The first time I went down, I went to the mess deck and the kids were tied to the tables. Okay, now that's a true story. I saw it. The second time I went down, I went to the officer's quarters. He had his but butox there against the bulkhead and his other hands across here and he stood that way all night. The men on the Sundew knew they were in much better condition than anyone on the Bradley. The four survivors rode the raft all night, flipping over in mountainous seas. Fleming knew there were other ships in the area. The question was whether they could be found in the darkness and spray. The first mate knew where ships were in the vicinity. He knew that the Transcentorial was ahead of us in Lake Michigan somewhere, and she heard the mayday. 
she started out towards us, which was estimated to be maybe an hour away, but it took her many hours to get there because she was fighting against a heavy sea. And we actually saw her, we saw her running lights because uh, the first mate had three flares, which were kept in a life raft that he brought out, and he lit two, and uh, the ship reported seeing these two flares. That's why it headed, they had pinpointed, they were heading to us, and he saved the last one till he felt it was time, and that one didn't ignite. So uh, we watched her coming, and then we saw her uh, green running light disappear, so we knew she was turning. Two ships would pass the life raft that night. A German ship saw the explosion and watched the Bradley's lights disappear. The captain of the Christian Sartori said it was difficult riding against 50 mile per hour winds. He told us that it uh, took him two hours to get to the site where he saw the explosion. And uh, when he arrived there, he saw nothing but a damaged tank. That was the only thing he saw. And I think what he saw was that capsized lifeboat. It was aluminum, and in its over-capsized condition, it looked like it might have been a tank. But I think that's what he saw. We rolled officially three times to 55 degrees. You ever been in a roll of 55? No, you don't want to be. We had sparks on our electric board down below because the board was underneath what came down. Hey, no fun. The, the engineer on duty was uh, now passed away. I put my foot to go down, and he's coming up. He's got one foot on the ladder, and he's looking up at the chronometer. You know what that is? Mm -hmm. And he said to me, if that thing goes above 55 degrees, I'm out of here. Three times it was at 55 degrees, not 60, not lying. We never would have come back from 60. I got a complaint from the engine room. said the water's coming down a stack. and uh, Evidently, our main electrical board in the engine room uh, was right under the stack. Water was hitting the board, and they were afraid they were going to short the board out and lose power. And uh, I was kind of hard on the engine room because uh, I was trying to keep the darn vessel afloat uh, the best we could and, and get out to where we're supposed to be. And I told them, never mind the, the, the water down the stack. I said, we're just trying to get out to where we belong. And if it comes down the stack, it comes down the stack. So I said, keep a, a good supply of uh, rags and whatever you need to wipe off the board. Well, they're not going to wipe off any wet board, I guess. But. The captain says the hardships endured are part of the deal when you sign up to save lives. Well, that's what they're paying us to do. And uh, when, when you question whether you should go out or not because of rough weather, you're, you're in the wrong ballpark. That's, that's when we do our, you know, the best, the best uh, job is when we go out in the storms. And, uh, there's never been any thought in my mind that the, you don't have to come back. Uh, you come back if, you, if, you, if you're doing the job right. So that, yes, you go out in rough weather, but uh, there's no such thing as uh, you gotta go and you don't have to come back. There are reasons to come back, just as there are reasons uh, to go out. So our, our Coast Guard vessels are, are pretty sturdy and their, their stability is good and uh, they're built to handle rough weather. The captain on the Sartori had been in the storm for hours. He asked the Sundu if he could continue on south. He had to go to Chicago to either discharge and uh, take a cargo aboard or vice versa. 
the locks, the Welland Canal locks uh, closed sometime around the 15th or maybe between the 10th and 15th of December. So he had, he had a time element problem and uh, I recognized that, but I said, that, uh, Captain, I said, another three, four hours isn't gonna make that much difference, is it? And he, his only response was, I've got to make the locks, I've got to make the locks. And he talked in broken English and I don't know whether he understood uh, English very well, but he knew what I was saying. I told him, I said, uh, that I would greatly appreciate it. And the Coast Guard would greatly appreciate it if he stayed on scene until the Hollyhock came in. The Hollyhock was an old lighthouse tender, which had a following sea that pushed her from Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, out to the search area. Even with the wind, it wouldn't arrive until the next morning. He called me again and I said, well, we've got the Hollyhock coming. She's going to be due in here around 2 o'clock. Could you stay till 2 o'clock? No, I got to make the locks. So. At that point, I knew he, he was he was getting pretty edgy, and I said, "Would you stay another half hour?" Yeah, he says, "That I'll do." So he stayed another half hour. And when the half hour was up, he said, "That I go now." I said, "Well, could you give us another half hour?" He said, "No, got to make the locks." But I think at that time it was pretty close to the arrival of the Hollyhocks. So I said, okay, you've done a wonderful job and we thank you very much and good luck on your, your voyage. Uh, so he, he kept going to Chicago. The Hollyhocks radio was also out. Quartermaster Bob Jess said very few of the crew were spared from the rolling seas. Our radios were busted, so we only had one radio. And that was just line of sight. So we communicated with the Sundu, but couldn't get anybody else. Everybody was sick, except me. I never been seasick in my life. Scared, but not seasick. Well, you're always scared going out on a ship that's 50 years old. You don't know if it's gonna fall apart or what. On the life raft, the four men were fighting to stay alive. We held onto the raft. It, uh had about a three-inch slot with possibly a half-inch between each slot you could stick your fingers into. It didn't have any handles on it. It was just uh, lying down either on your side or on your belly, hanging onto the raft and staying close to each other. During the night, we tipped over three times. We had lost our paddles and oars that were on there, and we knew there was a sea anchor, so we threw the sea anchor out, and that held us into the sea. And from then on, we didn't tip over. We just started riding with the sea. Visibility was poor because the tops of the waves were blowing off and a lot of spray and spume in the air and uh, we couldn't see very well. I'd, we'd said, if we got on top of a wave, we could see beyond the next one, but otherwise you couldn't see beyond the next wave. What you saw was a wall of water in front of you most of the time. I had ice in my hair. I lost my cap. However, I had on my uh, fall weather jacket and heavy pants, heavy shoes. but. It was uh, at one time when the raft tipped over, I recall holding on and staying in the water because the water was warmer than the air. And then climbing back on because you realize you couldn't stay in the water too long, get back on again. And uh, we just sort of uh, huddled up, held on, and kept talking all night because we knew we couldn't fall asleep because if you fell asleep and should roll over or something, you'd roll right off. You didn't have much protection. During the night, uh, one of the I guess it was when the raft flipped over for the first time. One of the other uh, 
survivors decided he didn't want to come back on the raft. They couldn't, they couldn't get him aboard. And uh, just before we picked him up, maybe an hour earlier, uh, the other fellow who was on the raft uh, decided that he was going to swim to shore. And he drove off, and uh, they couldn't convince him to come back either. The crewman almost made it to the shore of High Island and was picked up by the freighter Trans-Ontario after noon on the 19th. A doctor was airlifted by chopper from Charlevoix, but the ordeal was too much for the sailor, who died shortly after coming aboard. Sundu's medic didn't believe anyone could stay in Lake Michigan for very long. Between you and me, I don't think any of them had survived more than 15 minutes. And we didn't get there for four hours, so figure that one out. I mean, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't. Not being able to check every piece of debris in the water haunted Warren for the rest of his life. We didn't begin to notice people in the water. Once in a great while, the searchlight would see like a jack, but you know, you're going this way, this way, this way, and you, if people don't understand, you don't have a set light. It's not a car light. You're, you're, you're trying to hold, and all of a sudden, there's one, and then it's gone. And you can't find it because they're in other ways. That's how it is. You heard from, um... Charlevoix lifeboat station that the airplane had spotted a overturned uh, lifeboat. And we went to, down to look at the lifeboat. We came along, alongside of it and picked up one end of it, saw that there were no survivors or, or victims uh, under it. And uh, then the Hollyhock at that point uh, called us and said they were seeing victims uh, north of Gull Island. Uh, and uh, we dropped a lifeboat and went up to, to retrieve those uh, people that were coming around the north end of Gull Island. We picked up, I think, nine. Now drifting with a wind five and a quarter miles east-northeast of Gull Island, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming were encouraged as dawn broke. We saw when daylight came, uh, we were looking around and the first mate knew the position we were in, he knew the island, and he had pointed out that there was High Island and Trout Island, which we were heading through. He made a remark that uh, maybe we can make it to an island because if we don't, we're going to be back out in open water again. And we were looking around, and I looked to, towards behind me, and that's where I saw this airplane coming. And it headed right to us. Along about 6 o'clock, I decided to take a run up to the northeast, uh, look around Trout Island. I thought perhaps some of the debris or wreckage or whatever was in the water uh, would, had gone by us and I'd, I'd go up there and take a look. So we went up there, saw no sign of anything up there and I turned around and thought, well, perhaps some of it had uh, gone by the southern tip of uh, Gull Island. Sundu was rotating men on the bridge as lookouts, and one of the men from the galley took the binoculars as they approached Gull Island. We had a cook up on the, in the wheelhouse who was uh, acting as a lookout. He said, Captain, he said, I think I see something. I said, where? He said, almost dead ahead. But I took uh, my binoculars and uh, looked up dead ahead, and sure enough, there were two men in a, what I thought was a boat. Looked like they were sitting upright. And uh, first, my first inclination was that uh, these might have been a couple of uh, deer hunters uh, from High Island that had weathered the storm and decided to try to make it back to Charlevoix. But 
When they came up into view as they rode on top of the wave, we, we determined that it was a life raft, not a boat. And then we knew that uh, that was probably some survivors from the uh, Bradley. When they come alongside, we still had heavy seas yet, but the captain of Sundu put a broadside to us so that he drifted in and calmed the sea for us. And they threw us a line which neither out of one of us grabbed because we didn't know we couldn't grab. We had no idea. So uh, a couple of guys off the Sunday jumped immediately on the raft, scared the raft and grabbed us and just snaked us over the rail. Fellows on deck told me that uh, they had a big grin on their face when they came aboard. Uh, so they were they were glad to see us. But they, 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 they were just pretty near done in. They, they'd had a rough time. It was a rough night for them. Sundu's corpsman was ordered to get some sleep in anticipation of picking up survivors at daylight. And Warren Toussaint loosely tied himself to his bunk to stay in place in the rolling ship. At 8.15, he was summoned to the portside buoy deck to watch the crew bring Mays and Fleming aboard. They wanted food. I couldn't give them food. All the food in the galley was in the on, on the deck. We lost all our food. There was no, finally the cook made some cocoa. That's the only thing he could make. We were rolling quite a bit there and the seas were still, I don't know, probably 15, 20 feet, something like that. So uh, the decks were wet. It was pretty, pretty slippery conditions. They got him into the chief's quarters and our pharmacist mate or hospital corpsman uh, covered with blankets and assigned people to rub down their arms and legs and try to restore circulation uh, because they were pretty well covered with ice. Their hair was full of ice and their clothing was covered with ice. They, they were well attended. The pharmacist made, did a, a bang-up job, I thought. The survivors report hearing a thud before the stern started to sag. Terror and confusion followed. Then they were in heaving waters with ice starting to form in their hair. The fortunate survivors of the worst Great Lakes shipping disaster in 18 years. Captain Muth was anxious to get statements from the survivors, especially if it could save additional lives. The medic said the skipper wanted to know when the men were warmed up and ready to talk. He says, as soon as you think that I can see them, I want to ask them questions. I said, come on down, they're in good shape. He came right down, he talked to them about what happened. I was stood aside. As he started to walk out, both of them said, stay in the area, we want you to find some of our shipmates. I thought there were a couple of tough cookies. Uh, when I talked to them, uh, they responded to my questions uh, readily. There was, there was no hesitation on their part. And, uh, they answered every question I put to them. When I, when I asked them if they wanted us to go back, they were pretty, uh, strong in their position that, no, you stay out here and keep searching. The Sundu continued as on-scene commander for another five hours, searching Lake Michigan for any other crewmen. Just after lunch, the survivors started going into shock. See, I was taking their temperature 15 minutes for hours on end. And when their temperatures went up about 1.32 in the afternoon, I said to the captain, this is it, we've taken them back. That's what they think I helped them out. I didn't allow them to get sick. It's between you and me, I think Frank was saved mostly because he was very mature and also the fact that the man he was with was the first mate who'd seen some, some time on the lakes and he kept telling don't get off the life raft. No matter how you feel, don't leave the raft. The Coast Guard will find us in the morning. Yeah, but they passed us tonight. We could get within 100 yards, we couldn't see them. 
corpsman told me that uh, the two survivors uh, had a rise in temperature. He's taken their temperature. So uh, he said that might be an indication that they could possibly be going into pneumonia. So I said, all right, we'll, we'll call a halt to things and uh, told the Hollyhock to take over as on-scene commander and we went back to Charlevoix. I think we arrived there, it was just about dusk, maybe 4.30 or 5 in the evening. At the hospital, Frank and Elmer met with company officials who confirmed they were the only survivors. 33 of their friends had perished when the Bradley went down. We have no idea. We thought the other ships in the area could have picked up some, some could have got on the lifeboat. We had no idea, probably until about the very next day, after being in a hospital and then you start settling in a little bit and talking to uh, maybe some of the company officials that came over immediately and then uh, telling us uh, you know, how many did and how many that did not. They had no physical, very hard injuries of any kind. They, they, they weren't, uh, they were calm. But one thing people don't understand is, if you are, if you're rescued, people don't jump up and down and say, hey, you got, you find me, you know, give me a hug. You know what they do? They look at you and their eyes are black, like yours right now. And they look at you because their half brain says, I'm saved, and the other half says, it has true. And they don't talk a lot. And you think there's something wrong. They're not there. Almost like a prisoner of war. Relatives and friends of crewmen wait on the shore for news from the rescue crew, but hopes gradually grow dimmer and dimmer. Sundu pulled into Charlevoix and was intending to head to the Coast Guard dock when the skipper realized that an ambulance was waiting on the public dock. He ordered the cutter there and noticed it was packed with journalists awaiting word of the search. Yeah, I was surprised in a, in a, in a way. I didn't know that, you know, Charlevoix is a small town. But evidently there, there were people from out of town. There were uh, television people and newspaper people all over the place. And there was kind of a big crowd in the city dock. We normally didn't tie up to the city dock, but when I saw the ambulances parked there and the crowd, uh, we turned around and around the lake and tied up to the city dock. One by one, the bodies are brought ashore. There were some reports that the ship split in two before sinking. Muth and his crew were instantly hailed as heroes for taking on the storm and bringing home survivors. If you want to say that I'm a hero, you might want to say that there are a few thousand other heroes in the Coast Guard. We didn't do anything that any other Coast Guard unit would have done in the same uh, position. So uh, if you want to call us heroes, that's all right. But. What we're doing is we're doing the job we're paid to do. And uh, I think the heroes are the people that uh, have lost their lives and their families and their friends who have to suffer. We didn't have to suffer. We, uh, we endured some uncomfortable uh, conditions, but that's, that. that's what we're getting paid to do. The Bradley carried a 35-man crew. Two were picked up on a raft after a 14-hour ordeal in the cold waters. The search continued in hopes that others might have reached islands in the area, but to no avail. Coast Guard Albatross UF-2135 flew over the area of the sinking and noted an oil slick. Those coordinates were shared with the Sundu, who ran out during buoy retrieval operations on December 2nd. Since we were in the vicinity, I thought I'd uh, 
make a stab at trying to locate the, the Bradley. And uh, we, we had a pretty fair position on it. We, we went to that area and made a couple passes in the north and south mode. And I think on the third run, uh, we had a, our fathometer on with a, a recorder attached to it, which, which would record a, a silhouette of anything on the bottom. And we ran across something that looked like a silhouette of a large ship. And it had a pretty even trace on the graph and then a big uh, upsurge and a quick uh, return to the bottom line. So I uh, took our position as best we could at that time with the uh, radar and uh, took the tracing from the fathometer recorder and sent them into Cleveland, told them what had happened, where we were and what we had received. A seven-man ground team scoured the tiny islands of Gulf, Whiskey, Squaw, and Garden Islands, finding only a life jacket and some scattered debris. In the meantime, the Coast Guard Commandant of the Great Lakes was picked as part of a three-man team to investigate the casualty. In fact, they held, uh, I think, the opening session on board the uh, Sundu in our wardroom. And they called me in and asked me uh, to give an accounting of our efforts and search and what we saw and what we found out. And I told them and they didn't ask me any questions. I think they interviewed our, a couple of our crew members later on. Um, all they got from them was, uh, was, yeah, this is kind of a wild night. <laughs> Captain Muth had already heard what the survivors had witnessed, that the Bradley ripped down the deck and disappeared. I know that when you twist the same metal constantly, it weakens. And I think that's what happened in the case of the Bradley. After 10 days in the hospital, Frank and Elmer were released. Fleming went back to the lakes, eventually as captain of the motor vessel Cedarville. Frank Mays wasn't about to go aboard a freighter. After that, I had no desire. I just said, nah, I'll do that instead. I'll try a different career. Each of the 33 families who lost loved ones were left grieving just days before Christmas. As president of the fleet, Chris Bukema made a point to visit the families in northern Michigan. I made a personal, personal uh, campaign of going around to many of the, all those, in the, certainly in the Rogers City, Sheboygan, on the way, those areas, those farms around there where these boys had come from, these people from. And I went around and visited the survivors. And uh, that was a rough deal. I mean, you know, it was, it was at a time, the boat, the boat went down the latter part of November, what was it, the 18th, something like that. And uh, so people were getting ready for Christmas. So it was, a, it was a rough time for everybody. It was a lot of pathos. And uh, I'll never forget one mother in Sheboygan telling me that she didn't know what she was going to do because, because her son, who was always was so tall, always put the star on top of the Christmas tree, and there sat the Christmas tree. Pretty rough. And uh, yeah, that. Uh, but that's that goes with the that goes with the territory. Speculation always circles after sinkings that the captain was pressured to get the cargo through. Bukema insists it wasn't true. It had not occurred to me or any of my predecessors 
to my judgment, my best knowledge, that indeed uh, anybody should tell them how to sail a ship. As a matter of fact, there would be great resentment if you ever tried to tell a captain. Out of the Bradley situation did, I did, however, much to the resentment of the masters. I called them together and told them I would never tell them to leave the shelter of a safe haven. But I was directing them that any time full gale warnings were up, they were to take safe haven and stay there until the gale warnings were gone. That was an order. And from then on, well, they resented that very much. An $8 million lawsuit was announced, but eventually it was settled at just over a million dollars. Over $100,000 were raised by a collection of the newspapers and most of the sailors of the Bradley fleet. Frank Mays says his neighbors and friends were kind enough to never bring up his survival when over 20 men from his hometown weren't as lucky. No, nobody asked because the town people were very good, the people of Rogers City. They uh, didn't bring it up and I didn't say anything. And uh, A few fellows that I sailed would stop by just to say, well, good. And uh, they never asked anything about it or said anything. They just come over, say hi and talk a little bit and leave. The Lake Survey Tug Williams went to the coordinates supplied by the Sundew and found a target that was 500 feet long at a depth of 360 feet. The question was, why was the shipwreck 100 feet shorter than the Carl D. Bradley? U.S. Steel put a plan into action to survey the deep water wreck using a drill ship from California. I had a personal curiosity in the situation from the standpoint that I could not understand how that ship could go down. As a matter of fact, I had even planned on being on that trip, but because the Bradley fell back in its dispatch from a previous trip, uh, I got and had a deadline I had to meet at, uh, from, I was up from Detroit where my office was, and I had to be at Roger City on the Sunday while the Bradley was unloading down below. The Submarax lowered a long 350-foot pipe down to the wreck, and with anchors nearly 600 feet apart, U.S. Steel could safely survey nearly the entire ship. That's why I brought in a ship from San Diego, the uh, Submarex, which was part of the Global Marine uh, uh, Oil Exploration Company. And they came through the Panama Canal and down the seaway. And uh, we got on site. And uh, by putting out cables uh, 90 degrees at bow and from the stern, we were able to move the Submarex up and down the Bradley once we located it. We put a drill stem down with a TV camera on it, with floodlights. But uh, the visibility was extremely poor. I was astounded. I had always thought that the Great Lake and Lake Michigan, I lived on it most of my life, that it would be very, very clear. But uh, it was very murky, very murky and full of sedimentary fineness in the, uh, in the uh, bottom and uh, we get an awful lot of reflected uh, from that as the lights we get reflected light back into the camera lens which would occlude uh, the, the visibility. We had to get very close to the image we were looking at to see it. Even with poor visibility, Bukema says the wreck was clearly their old flagship. I did see the name of the, on the boat, I did see the Carl D. Bradley and I did see the top of the rudder and we walked that uh, submarex down the gunnel of the, of the ship uh, 
to see it and uh, see what happens. One half, the, and I forget which side, I, not all of it comes clear, but uh, part of the ship is, is buried in the bottom on the one side. Uh, but you could see how the crack of the deck shattered across the deck diagonally, uh, caused by what this tremendous torque and twist it got as it got on top of that wave. That's my judgment. Photos were allegedly shot from the TV monitor as the camera passed over the Bradley, and headlines read that the Bradley was intact on the bottom. Bucoma was transferred to Minnesota soon afterwards, and he says he never followed what happened in the settlement. Of course, the company, uh, there were a lot of suits against, uh, against us on the part of a bunch of plaintiff or attorneys. And out of that came, uh, as he brought the parties together, as judges do, out of that came a settlement that settled the case. So when I left the case, uh, when I went to Duluth, all the work that had been done, which had been recorded and, and notes taken and, uh, and pictures taken off the television screen, uh, all of that was in the hands of the attorneys, and uh, I don't know whatever happened. New York Admiralty Council had it, and uh, whatever happened to it, I probably, it probably was destroyed. The case was over. The historians of the lake writing the stories have always talked about the Bradley breaking in two and sinking in two pieces. It did not. Had the afterran broken off, my feeling is without any question, we'd had more lives saved because she would have had a buoyancy that would have kept them afloat long enough for some people to, to become safe. Bradley survivor Frank Mays believes the survey and subsequent findings were wrong. What Chris Bukema says that it did not break in two is absolutely positively wrong. It did break in two. I was there, I seen it. Elmer Fleming was there, he saw it, and Elmer, before he passed away, it, he and I had conversed many times, and uh, we know we've seen a break in two. And even to this day, I can visualize it in two pieces. Whereas Chris Bugham was not there, he is only going on pure hearsay. And these so-called pictures that U.S. Steel had taken, saying the ship was in one piece, but were never produced, I've never seen them. The ship uh, basically got into a condition for which it was not designed and which the naval architects did not believe could ever happen on the Great Lakes. I believe the ship got on top of a one-wave situation, which no ship on the Great Lakes was ever designed for. And when it got on that one-wave situation with a tremendous weight, both bow and stern, it was just like at the fulcrum of a teeter-totter, and it just broke at the deck. Didn't break down the bottom, broke at the deck. And uh, that, of course, uh, opened up the water, uh, opened up the sides, so the water filled up the cargo. Remember, the ballast tanks were already filled with water by the mate's testimony because uh, they had to hold her down and, uh, in the sea. And, uh, so when the, when the cargo hole filled up with water, uh, she had no place to go but down. The survey did show the rudder position was hard right, which made Bukema surmise they were turning off their set course. He believes it was to avoid the German ship Sartori. Now remember, this is a full gale warning, a big, terrific warning. All the other ships on the lakes in the vicinity were at anchor and shelter. 
He left the lee shore and went across, having full confidence in his ability to do it. My judgment is he would have without question made it had not he found this little ship directly in his path. And if I think probably he may have wanted to uh, give it a, a green light passing because he was holding up the stern of the Bradley, no doubt. No doubt. I, this is my surmise. I don't know this. But he had to have left rudder on to keep that stern from being beaten around by the seas. And uh, when the Christ, Christian Satori, little German ship, uh, gave him the red light, that was to him, without any question, the ship turning directly across his path. So he had to give a left rudder, or a right rudder, right rudder to correct. When he did that, he lost the purchase against the sea of the rudder. The fleet president did say improvements came from the investigation of the sinking. You'd learn from disasters. For example, I was uh, shocked to find, as we walked the beaches looking for bodies, to find many life jackets with no bodies in them. We found some life jackets with just a shirt in, but there were no body. And I suddenly realized that the reason was that none of the life jackets, which were Coast Guard approved in the, you know, regular regulation, had any crotch straps on them. So in other words, the body could go limp and the action of the body floating on the water on the surface, would, the body would wash out of the life jacket, which would have greater buoyancy. And there were no crotch steps to hold the body in, and it washed out. We immediately changed all of our life jackets and sewed them in. I notified the Coast Guard, didn't ask their permission. I notified them what we were doing, and it was up to them if they wanted to change the sand. I also put a life raft aft that was one up forward, so that basically the proposition of taking the time to swing the davits and get the boats out, they'd still have some alternative. The wreck of the Carl D. Bradley soon faded from most people's memory, as other wrecks occurred like the Daniel J. Morrell and the Edmund Fitzgerald, which had a top 40 song written about its loss. Frank notes that four more sailors were lost on the Bradley than on the Fitz. The Fitzgerald seemed to get all the honor and glory and the Rogers, the Carly Valley of Rogers City was just pushed to the wayside. Same way with the steamer Cedarville, nothing was said much about that. It sunk and uh, after everything was over with, it was sort of, people went back to their normal way of life. It was the success of the 1994 expedition to the Edmund Fitzgerald that led to discussions about relocating and diving the Carl D. Bradley. After painting several views of the Fitzgerald based on Expedition 94 footage, Artist Jim Clary teamed up with a Mount Morris businessman to bring the Delta sub back to fresh water. Retired U.S. Steel Vice President Chris Bukema worried the trip would be dangerous. I really have some misgivings to an extent about even cooperating with you on this interview because it's 37 years of, of agony that have been put to rest uh, and uh, I just basically think that people don't want to have the thing all stirred up or anything of that nature. But when you called me and told me you were going to be going on down, or going down to take a look at it, I felt I had to caution you because the Bradley's not like the Fitzgerald, in that the Fitzgerald was a straight deck ship with no entanglements on the, on the deck, whereas the Bradley had all of the boom structure and had cables and the A-frame and a tremendous amount of stuff that could you get encumbered. As a matter of fact, it's because of that concern that I did not send divers down. But you've got to be very, very careful you go down there because there are an awful lot of cables and all the boom structure 
There's a lot of debris down there, and the visibility is very, very poor. Dukema's worries were well-placed. The first dive descended to the wreck, and the surface crew listened for what the sub was seeing. sent the sub down on the first dive, which uh, uh, was my dive, and uh, found out that uh, the visibility uh, had actually uh, not uh, allowed us to continue on. Uh, this was a safety call on the part of uh, Delta Oceanographics, and uh, of course we weren't pleased, but also, uh, as even Frank Mays said, we've had enough uh, loss of life out here at the scene of this disaster. There is really no reason to continue on uh, if it is a uh, problem with safety, which it certainly was. So uh, we were all disappointed, but uh, tomorrow's another day. It looks like we're uh, going to do some more uh, appraisal tonight uh, with the drop camera. There was some optimism that the wreck was only clouded because of recent bad weather. We had a, a storm come through yesterday, which accounted for a lot of the uh, suspended turbulence that we still have at that depth. Uh, but the lakes change constantly, and uh, 12 hours or 16 hours might make a tremendous difference in the, uh, the bottom conditions. Frank Mays knew the danger, but he himself wanted to honor his crewmates with a plaque listing each of their names. Delta made a final dive, and he found himself near where the lifeboats were located. I saw the name. I didn't see the complete name. Uh, the pilot saw the Carl D. Bradley. I saw the word Carl, and then we were maneuvering away from it, and... Apparently the currents moved a little bit farther away and we lost sight of it. Frustrating? Yes. I wish we could have seen more of it, that we could have stayed really hugged alongside of it and kept going. In the direction we were going, we would have gone completely around the stern, up the port side and to the area where the break is, the actual parting of the ship. They were uh, a very, very short 29 minutes. I wanted to see more of it, however, but through maneuvering, we got lost down there and bringing safety in, uh, it was decided to surface. But during the time I was there, I never thought that I would come that close to the ship again. Although I was inside of the sub, I was approximately three feet from it. And then the sub touched right against, or right against the side of the ship. And the part that we seen was the starboard side of the after end and that part is sitting upright on the bottom. And it's just like it was parked there. In early May of 1997, Frank Mays returned to Michigan. This time the team used a remote operated vehicle or ROV to make the dives. Early spring was chosen to reduce the particles in the water and it worked as the team recorded several hours of footage and returned to port with a press conference that declared the ship was in two sections, 90 feet apart. Subsequent scuba dives to the wreck and a sonar scan by the Michigan State Police have proven this to be false. In 2007, divers removed the bell of the Carl D. Bradley for a display at a Rogers City Museum. They replaced the original with a replica that had engraved names of the lost crew. Video from later dives proved there was a 20-foot gap in the starboard deck of the Bradley, and the ship appeared to be connected and somewhat in line with the bow and stern. How the Bradley is connected is still being debated as the port side is buried in the mud and very difficult to visualize the damage. 
The final chapter of what actually happened to the Carl D. Bradley is still a mystery, and one of the eyewitnesses to the disaster has passed on. First mate Elmer Fleming died on February 26, 1959. Chris Bukema passed on May 14, 1999. Captain Muth, who was invited to break ice one final time on Sundu before the ship was retired in 2004, died in Florida in 2017. It was great to be on there as a commanding officer, and it's great to come back. Uh, this is a wonderful vessel. I'm, I'm sorry to see that it's going to be decommissioned, but I know that uh, the vessel that replaces it will be bigger and better. And then, uh, as people say, life goes on. Like his corpsman, Captain Muth went to his grave wondering if he had done all he could to help the 33 who lost their lives on the Carl D. Bradley. In a, in a case like that, you always uh, come up with uh, the thought that maybe you didn't do everything you should have done. But uh, on reconsideration, uh, Probably we did what we could under the conditions that we faced with the number of people that we had. And I think the crew did a very, very good job. I think uh, there was, uh, as far as I know, no complaints about the standing extra watches. Uh, nobody slept. Uh, some people crawled in their sacks and tried to sleep, but I was told that nobody slept a wink that night. Corman Warren Toussaint passed September 26, 2017 and co-leader to the expeditions in 1995 and 1997, artist Jim Clary died from cancer on March 31, 2018. This podcast is dedicated in their honor. This is Great Lakes history at its finest. At the far end of the table is Frank Mays. Frank is a survivor of the Carl D. Bradley when in November 18 of 1958, the ship broke in two. Frank was one of two survivors. Thank God you're with us, Frank. Frank Mays continues to tour with his book, If We Make It Till Daylight. His lectures continue to not only captivate the lucky people who get to meet him, but also shine more light on a ship that time almost forgot. As a reminder, these interviews are copyright 2020 by Airworthy Productions, and nothing can be recorded or rebroadcast without written permission. Learn more about Great Lakes history at shipwreckpodcast.com or find out more about the Carl Bradley in my documentaries Cutter Rescue, Final Run, and Deep Six. They are all available on www.lakefury.com or your favorite maritime museum. I'll leave you with a song that was inspired by my interview with Frank Mays, written by David O. Norris and performed by Dan Hall. You can find Dan's incredible music at www.danhall.com. For Shipwreck Podcast, I'm Rick Mixter. Twas fall 58 when I got the chance to ship on the Bradley upbound. The waves tossed her hard as I checked the holds and then heard that terrible sound. As the metal plates crashed and the hull it was gashed I raced to the top of the deck And we saw the ship torn by the wave and the storm 
And the great Carl Bradley was wrecked Now the queen of the lakes Had not long to live As we unstrapped the raft and climbed on Her lights were still lit Even though she was ripped As she slowly sank and was gone in the darkness and wave We cheated the grave Me and Fleming survived till the dawn And we'd never forget And I remember it yet When the Bradley was torn and then gone And now we Sailors have died when the winds open wide Like they sing in the words of that song Oh, but Fleming and I rode the waves and survived When the Bradley was torn and then Fitzgerald was lost I remembered the cost Of the Bradley all too clear to me Only Fleming and I Were left there to cry For our friends who were lost on the seas Rogers City would mourn their men's lost to the storm And a bride who would now not be well There were fathers and sons And brothers among The 33 Bradley crew dead Now we hear the rhyme Of the 29 times that the bell tolls the fits and her crew Everyone knows when the nor'easter blows And the gales of November rip through That sailors have died when the winds open wide Like they sing in the words of that song but Fleming and I rode the waves and survived When the Bradley was torn and then gone Now November sweeping each year time again And I watch the west sky and I see Where the big storms are born and the great freighters torn And I think then of Fleming and me
Somewhere down below Where the lost freighters go Are still crews that never came home And I'll never forget that night on the deck When 